this morning, we're going to be, if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at Acts. We're still in our book of Acts, looking at the series, going through it week by week. And this morning, we're going to be in Acts 11, looking at, at verse 19 all the way to chapter 13, verse 3. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing up front. We're going to go through it section by section, and I'll fill us in and tell some of the story as we go. But uh, just for context, the gospel is moving and the church is growing. And uh, it's been quite incredible. Uh, even though there's growing pains, the, the gospel's taking root in, in these churches and in these Christians. And Doug looked last week at how the gospel has formed one new community. And it's, so it's not just for Jews no longer. Now the Gentiles or the, the non-Jews are welcomed in as well. And so there's this one new community being welcomed in. The, the church is growing. Christians are being made. And uh, this thing is growing culturally and not limited to any one uh, culture any longer. Uh, this morning... The way the book of Acts is written, and I think what Luke wants us to see, is that the gospel is not only growing culturally, but geographically. And so the gospel is now breaking out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, Samaria, and that area, and advancing uh, beyond far and wide. New cities and new people are hearing the gospel for the first time. There's new converts, and a new church is being established. And uh, just to position us as to how that started happening, because it's quite significant, and that uh, you may think it's because these Christians were so mission-hearted, right? Well, not maybe, but not quite. It actually happened because of something quite different. If you look with me at Acts 11, verse 19, it tells us how it got going. And it reads, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution." That started because of Stephen, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So let's just bank this, how this church started uh, growing and moving and expanding, how the gospel started reaching new frontiers was actually through persecution. The church's darkest moments in Jerusalem were how it was, was God's plan to expand things far and wide. And uh, you may, it mentions there Stephen. You may remember him from Acts chapter 7. He was one of the deacons of the first church there. And preaching, a godly man at city, was filled with the Spirit. And uh, they obviously, the religious leaders didn't like what he was doing. They, they saw him as a heretic and blasphemer. So they brought him before the council of the religious leaders and asked him, what are you doing? Why are you preaching the gospel? And he essentially gave them a long speech telling them that, hey, guys, the whole of Jewish history, the whole of the Torah, the, the Jewish Bible is actually pointing to Jesus, and you guys have missed it. And uh, they obviously didn't like that very much. And so Stephen gets stoned with rocks, I should uh, clarify. They, they, kill, they kill Stephen. They didn't like what he said there. But it doesn't stop there. You carry on reading. And then Acts chapter 8, it says um, Saul, this is just before God, uh, Saul got saved. You see, he is on a mission to kill as many Christians as possible. 
And um, you, he thinks she's doing the right thing. He, he thinks he's protecting the Jews from being infiltrated by heretics and blasphemers that are going to come and corrupt the true faith. But actually, he, he's obviously deceived. And, and we know later on in, in uh, Acts, uh, we did it a few weeks ago, God intervenes and saves Saul. But the persecution has started against Christians, and the religious leaders are fully on board, trying to squash this thing, kill the Christians, uh, and get everything back to order. But of course, the gospel is moving forward, and there's nothing that can come against it. And so, what's quite amazing for us just to bank this morning is that God, as I already said, He grew the gospel, expanded the gospel, brought the gospel into new regions through this persecution, and that these Christians were no longer just in one place anymore, but they were all over the place. It's quite amazing. We'll come back to it a little bit later, but if, if this was you and I, uh, the persecution might be a cause for us to just uh, hunker down and hide away uh, and keep quiet, and maybe the suffering could have broken some of these Christians, but it's encouraging for us. They, in the midst of this, hold on to Jesus and stay on mission and keep looking to Jesus and sticking together at, as a community. And so the gospel and the church grows and advances even in light of this persecution. And so um, we don't often have titles for sermon, but today I just called it Broken for Blessing because that's a picture of what happens to the church. It gets broken for the blessing of new regions. And... Um, if you're wondering how we're going to talk about today and how we're going to cover all of this, because there's a great deal of, of verses, as I mentioned, it's basically this. God is the chief architect of His church and of His plan of how He's going to seek and save the lost, and He is at work uh, bringing people into salvation, into the relationship with Him. And as the architect of His grand plan, he obviously used this persecution for the purposes of growing his church. But as this church now in, this, in these new regions uh, begin to get established, what are the building blocks that God uses to establish and build his new church in this new region on? And as we work through this passage, it's quite amazing. There, there are four key building blocks that uh, particularly this new church in Antioch is built on. We're just going to go through it one by one. I trust it will encourage us and stir us. These are not the only four building blocks that obviously any church is built on, but they are, I believe, the four most clear ones in the text before us today. And I think for us as a church that we feel stirred to remember these four things as we um, seek to become more healthy and fruitful as a community. Okay, firstly, what do they focus on? The first building block is evangelism. Continue on looking at chapter 11 from verses 19 to 21. It says this. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, just pause there for a moment. As we said that at this point, there's still only evangelizing and speaking the gospel to Jews. And as Doug helped us see last week, no, God uh, gave a revelation to Peter, particularly in Acts 10, about how the gospel is no longer for just for Jews. It's for all kinds of people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. And so some of the guys are getting this. 
And so we see a change here in verse 20. It says, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So it's quite amazing that God is doing a, a work here in forming a new community and growing this, these new people in faith. But let's just be clear, the church is growing through evangelism, right? It's not strategies, it's not uh, cleverness, it's not events, it's not a cool leader with great jokes. It's just normal Christians doing the normal Christian thing of talking to others about Jesus and what he's done in their lives and what the word says he can do for others. Now, I hope this stirs us because this is the norm of how the church grows in the Bible. It's certainly the norm of Acts. It's the norm of the New Testament. And I believe it, it should be and ought to be the norm of any biblically growing church. Even if you look right back to Acts, there's a pattern that gets set. Uh, just after Pentecost, Peter and John are starting being missional and speaking about the gospel. And again, they get taken and brought before the religious leaders, right? This is a pattern that happens time and time again. They get brought forward and put on trial, and uh, eventually some of them would get killed. But at this particular moment, the religious leaders ask them, again, what are you doing? Why are you preaching the gospel? And their response is quite amazing. Acts 4.20, they says, we can not help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Like, we can't, we can't help it. We're so in, amazed and compelled by what Jesus has done in the gospel, and we're so convinced of his saving power that it is welling up within us that we cannot help it. We just have to get it out, because it's the message the church, the world needs more than anything else. Now, I think if we're honest with one another, Evangelism is probably one of the biggest areas of failure and maybe growth needed in every one of our lives, myself included. We, we all know that we're not killing this. I don't think anyone here would say they're an expert at evangelism. We, we just struggle with it. We, we struggle with, for a number of reasons, either we're just busy and distracted, maybe we are fearful of what people will think of us, maybe we are we just lack confidence in being able to articulate the message of the gospel and, or, or some other theological component. Maybe it's just apathy, and we, we're not convinced anymore, uh, anymore that it's the message and it's the only hope of the world, and it's what people need more than anything else. I, I think what I'd love to encourage us with this morning as we seek to just grow in this bit by bit is that we need to be careful not to make it about us. We, we have no ability, we're not compelling enough, we don't have the right words, we don't know what to say or how to say it. If we're relying on our cleverness and our persuasion to save others, we've missed the point and the power of what saves. It's not in our ability. So what we have to do if we want to grow in our evangelistic inclination and effectiveness is again remind ourselves of where the power to save comes from. It's not in our ability. It's in Christ and in what He can do. 
And I'd love us to just read these words together of, of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 4. This is what he said. This, is what, this was his response. And he said this, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. See what he's saying there is that we have no power to persuade others. Only God can get in a human heart and bring about new life and change. And so without him doing the work in the hearts of people, we're really just making noise. And look, just let's bank it that God may even use our mumbling and stumbling in someone's life over time. God is gracious like that. But it's not in us. We have to embrace our weakness and our inability here. Our confidence isn't in our persuasion. It's in the message. And what's even more incredible than this, and what's even more challenging for us, is, is our own conviction of, do we really believe in the saving power and the hope of Jesus, especially when life is tough? I think it's, it's not so much a case of do better, try harder, evangelize more. I think behind that is a deepening confidence in the hope of Jesus. If we're, if we're, the more convinced we are in the hope of Jesus, I think the more likely we are to really believe it and recommend it to others. And I think it's, a, it's more a refining our personal conviction here. And the reason I say that is just to look again at the situation and circumstances of this uh, Antioch church, these Christians in this area. As things were starting to grow, as these guys were starting to evangelize, just think about it. They're in the middle of a persecution. Their lives are at stake. Some of them would have had loved ones which were killed. They're in the middle of the darkest days of their life, and yet you don't see them hiding. You don't see them shrinking away. When it might be wise, look wise to zip it, to keep wise, um, quiet, to hunker down, to just um, cope with the pain, you see them actually running forward and growing and showing a confidence in the sufficiency of Jesus even in the midst of it. it it's, it's challenging to us. They're proclaiming the gospel. And I think just this might be a word for some of us this morning, that in the midst of your darkest days, hoping in Jesus deeply and genuinely might be the greatest testimony you have to share with others. It might be that the darkest, hardest parts of your life, the greatest suffering you've faced, is your greatest testimony that God might use to convince others, hey, maybe Jesus is something I can actually hope in. Maybe there is hope. I think that's some of what's going on with them. See, they had confidence in Jesus, in, even in the midst of their suffering, because they really believe Christ is sufficient. And so they shared the gospel with authenticity, with joy, with hope. 
and with trust in God's plan over their lives. Second building block we see here is discipleship. From verse, chapter 11, verse 22 to 26. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people who were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Before that, they were just called followers of the way or Christ followers. But they're called Christians as a result of what's going on here and how solid they're becoming. And so what we're seeing here is that the church in Antioch is growing. It's flourishing. It's exploding. Christians are, are, people are becoming Christians and a new church is being formed. And so what does the church in Jerusalem do? When they hear the news, how do they respond? It's amazing. They respond by sending one of their best guys to this new church to help lead them, to help disciple them, to establish them. He goes to establish them. And presumably the church gets a bit big or maybe things are increasingly complex. And so he realizes, Barnabas realizes maybe this isn't a one-man job. So he goes in search of Saul, brings Saul into the mix. And together it says they taught the church for a year. See, this church in Antioch, is, it's vulnerable. It's, it's a newly formed church on the basis of persecution without the weight and maturity of older believers, seasoned believers. And so what the Jerusalem church does is send them one of their best to strengthen them and to help them and to care for them and to encourage them. See, the beauty of gospel partnerships here is that it brings a strength and weight, particularly to new or struggling churches. It's one of the reasons why we love being part of any a network like Advance, is that like it's a joy for us this week to send Doug. He's going to go and disciple and strengthen and encourage the churches and the church leaders down in Durban. What a, what a gift to them. And we get the same thing. Guys get to come here next week. Timber's going to come and encourage us. We're going to be built up. We're going to be brought into something. These gospel partnerships are sweet and beautiful. But what we can't get past here, one of the biggest things with discipleship in general, and we see it again here, is the cost of discipleship. It, it costs this Jerusalem church a lot to send one of their best guys out of their number for the sake of this church. It's a massive loss. But they're, they're being persuaded by a deeper conviction that discipling these guys is more important than protecting what's going on here. They, they want to see these guys get strong and mature and get established. And so they're willing to take the hit for themselves, for the sake of their blessing. They are willing to be broken, as it were, for the blessing of this new community of faith. 
when it would have been so easier just to be comfortable. No, again, you see them giving out. And friends, we just have to bank this. Discipling others, giving uh, our lives away for the good of others so that they would be uh, matured and grown up in the faith, it will cost us. It's going to cost us time, energy, sometimes sleep. It's going to discourage us. You're going to feel uh, disheartened. At times, it's going to be amazing. But it's going to cost you. And we have to be convinced with what's going on here with discipleship. There is always a breaking for the blessing of others. It's an emptying of yourself so that others could be filled. It's a pouring out so that they would be poured into. And it's amazing what Barnabas does here time and time again. You see it firstly, we just read it, he fetches Saul. And now he's raising up Saul. And you read the book of Acts, it says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then it switches later and it becomes Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas does the work of pouring into this guy's life for years. And then eventually we get to hear about the great apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. But it, it all partly happened. God used this guy, Barnabas, to do it. It doesn't end there. At the end of uh, chapter 12, verse 25, we read, uh, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. So now they're doing it with him. And then it doesn't end there. The beginning of chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, we'll see two different things in these verses, but let's just read them first. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Just pause there for a moment. What we're seeing is that when this church was started, it was just Barnabas. He was the sole guy, the sole teacher, the sole leader. He brings Saul, now it's the two of them. By this stage, probably, I don't know what time frame has passed, but you see they've raised up a whole load of new teachers and leaders for the good of this church. They've raised up new guys. He's, they've discipled them to disciple others. And so, now having established new leaders who can take care of this church, what do they do next? What's amazing, they, they go do it again in another place. Read from verse 2, chapter 13. It says, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, they prayed and laid hands on them and they sent them off. See, so Barnabas and Saul are now going off to do it again. And they, they end up going to Cyprus to go do the whole thing again. Establishing a new church, discipling them, raising up leaders, discipling others to disciple others. So you may be asking, well, what does this look like for me? It's a great thing for the church. And I'm, I'm glad we've got guys who can do this. What does this mean for the average Christian? What does this mean for a Monday morning? What does this mean as we do life together as a church? Well, I think we can simplify and reduce it, and I'm just going to stick with what is in front of us in this text, this passage today. What did Barnabas do? When, what does it say when he got to this new church? Acts 11.23, it says, 
he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Just keep it simple. That's all he did. He's just encouraging them to stay holy and to stay faithful, to keep following Jesus, to remain true to the Lord, to keep their devotion to Christ pumping, to be aware of sin and of their wandering hearts. He's just encouraging them, old Barnabas. Get going, guys. You can do it. We I back you. Keep going. Remain faithful. Keep your hearts devoted to the Lord. In, in fact, you may not know this. It's very interesting. Barnabas is not even his real name. His name is Joseph. But they changed his name because Barnabas means son of encouragement. He's such an encourager that they changed the oak's name. They say, no, this is who you are. It's such a part of who you are. You are the guy we know we can lean on. When we're discouraged, you're going to put wind in our sails. When we feel like sin is killing us and we're useless, you're going to help us find joy in our salvation afresh. When we're struggling as a church and the suffering of the world and just the things we're facing is overwhelming us, now we know Barnabas is going to come and help us trust the Lord again. Friends, we need Barnabases, and we are called actually to be some of that to each other. That we would encourage all others around us, those right in front of us, to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. We'd just be encouraging one another. Guys, don't give up. You can do it. Keep trusting the King. Keep looking to Jesus. Let's go. That's our goal. It's the end goal. It's what we're aiming at. That we would just help each other keep following Jesus without losing heart, losing hope, or losing our way. Third building block of this church is that they demonstrated acts of mercy. Continuing on chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, it says, In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in, lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And uh, history tells us that this famine actually did happen in about 46 AD. And uh, what I just want us to look at here briefly is just two things. Firstly, that they trusted the prophetic word. So I don't know much about Agabus, but Obviously, he's a proven prophet. He, he's proven himself over time to be reliable and trustworthy. And so that's part of prophecy, right? There's a credibility that comes over time that they, they know that he brought this word and they're just trusting the Lord has revealed this to us. But more than that, that they know that they ought to respond now to what God has revealed. So it's not just that God has told them this and that they're like, wow, lucky, how interesting. Thoughts and prayers. Like, they respond now. So they know that God is calling them to do something in response. There, there's an action that needs to happen in obedience to that word. I just want to say briefly here. We still believe in, in the gift of prophecy as a spiritual gift for the church today, but it doesn't 
often come in the form of prediction. It's very rare, and it's actually not, we believe, the function and purpose of prophecy has changed a bit in that way. It's not about prediction any longer. We'd more define it as God bringing what is obvious in Scripture to bear in a timely way to a group of people or person in the here and now. So it's more about God spontaneously bringing something that is clear in Scripture in a way that lands on us. It might be a verse of, of Scripture that's just like, wow, that is God speaking. It might be uh, even just someone coming up to you with an encouragement. It might be a picture someone has for a group of people at church. It might be corporate or one-on-one. -on -one. You'll know it's more prophetic when you can easily find Bible verses to explain it or back it up, and when B it lands on you in a timely way. It's just, it's a word in season that you know this is God speaking and provoking us. Okay, sidebar done. How, do, how does the Antioch church here respond? Because there's this prophetic word. What do they do? Okay, I'm talking not about prophecy, about acts of mercy. They respond in acts of mercy. So they feel like God has brought this word about a coming famine. And they determine to say, send relief. They're concerned and they're compassionate. They don't want to see their brothers and sisters starve. And so from the, it says from the ability that each has, with the bucks they have, with the means they have, they are helping and giving out. Friends, acts of mercy are part of the Christian deal here. In fact, Tim Keller um, said this, that mercy is not the job of a Christian, it's the mark of a Christian. And he, he said that, um, he said that in, in I think, in, in particularly in, in light of 1 John 3, 17, which says this, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? So how does God's love reside in him? That's, that's what's, what's saying here. So God is such a compassionate, merciful God. It's who He is that it would be right for Christians to reflect His aching heart by feeling an aching heart ourselves and responding by providing for the needs and caring for the needs and supporting those in need right in front of us. And uh, I just want to encourage us and say, I think we've had uh, some growth in this in recent years. Particularly in the COVID times, uh, we, you know, that feels like a million years ago at this, at this stage. But uh, COVID came, it was a crisis, people lost their jobs, everyone was struggling, uh, if not emotionally and time and all of those uh, mentally, some were struggling financially, definitely outside our walls as well as inside. And so just through prayer and, and thought, we, we thought, what can we do here as the church? So we started two ministries or, or two opportunities to get stuck in. One we called Compassion in Action. We wanted to put our compassion, God's compassion, in action in our community. Um, so in the, you know, just the external means of grace or, or expressions of grace. And so we started a soup kitchen. Uh, we, we helped guys get IDs and passports. We, we fed them, gave them clothes. And we're still doing all of that uh, today. We still have that ministry going. Um, I was at NICE having a meeting the other day, and one of the 
uh, waiters, waitresses reminded us of how we were able to help some of them uh, in COVID when, when there was lockdown and the waitresses and waiters had no salary. We were just able to get stuck in. Like, we want to do that for our good. We, we want to love on them. We believe God has placed us in this place with those needs. And it's a, it's a joy to, to love on them in that way. But not only externally, it, it was the internal stuff I was reflecting on this week a bit and thanking God for because we realized there were needs in our walls. Um, and so we started a relief fund and uh, where people were able to give over and above regular giving, they gave. And I remember one elders meeting, we sat there looking at the number that was in that pot, like almost in tears together at the generosity of the church to care for one another in that moment. It was incredible. And what God did to provide, we, we paid for rent for some people, groceries, hospital bills, like it's, it's, the, the pot's empty by now, by the way, if you were wondering, but it was incredible, like the way the church stepped up and cared for one another. It was beautiful. What's so beautiful about acts of mercy is that it expresses the gospel because it's Christ's mercy flowing through his people for their good and for his glory. Would we grow in this, friends? Final thing, and, and this is where I want us to think about and, and perhaps even respond to later during worship. The fourth building block is prayer. Now, if we look at chapter 12, I'm going to tell some of the story and read some of the story, but we see that persecution is now stirring up again in, in these regions. It's stirring up again. People are coming after Christians, and at this point, they're coming after the apostle Peter. And it says this, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. And after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, here it is, but the church was fervently, was praying fervently to God for him. How does the church respond in, in Peter's moment of crisis? They respond by praying fervently for him. And it's quite amazing if you look at the rest of the story of chapter 12, he's in prison likely to be executed at some point, maximum security prison, in chains, guards all around him, no hope of escaping. And because of the prayers of the church, I believe, uh, it says an angel appeared to him one night, told him, hey, get up, he gets up, the chains fall off, follow me. And they literally walk out of the prison, past the guards who couldn't see them, I, I assume even, I don't even know if the, the prison doors were open or not, what was happening. It was clearly just an incredible miracle, the greatest jailbreak ever. And clearly God had a plan for Peter and he delivers him in a miraculous way. 
Now look, I don't want to over-spiritualize this in any way, but here's what I want to emphasize for this, from this. Sometimes we'll see the intervening power of God only when we give ourselves to persistent prayer and fervent prayer, particularly as a community. Now, I know my Reformed brothers in the room are saying, but prayer doesn't change things, prayer changes us. And that is true, but also these things are intention. Prayer changes things. It does. You read the pages of Scripture and you can't get over at how persistent prayer, persistently knocking on God's door, results in God in His grace and mercy, which He doesn't have to do, responding in miraculous, incredible ways. And some of us have need of God power. Some of us are in situations that we have no option, but something, a move of God is what we need. We have no other option. We've tried all the natural things. We need God to come and do what only He can do. And I believe this morning God is reminding us and even calling us to press into prayer individually but as a community for one another. Like we'll see the intervening grace of God as we intercede for each other. The interceding leads to intervening. Come on now. Come on. Like, I've had moments, church, where uh, I, I don't know why, but uh, I've had moments where I can feel people praying for me. Like, particularly sometimes it's just like a bad season I've been in in the past, or just they know something's coming. I've asked a team of guys to pray for me. You can feel it sometimes when the church is carrying you in prayer. It's a gift to one another. And I just want to encourage us this morning that prayer is how the church is one of the main ways the church carries one another all the way home. It's like, sometimes it feels like we're wounded and we're paralyzed. Prayer is like picking each other up, putting each other on our backs and working our way forward together. It's how we love on one another. And I know some of us, I don't know where everyone is at, but maybe this morning you've come here knowing how desperately you are in need of God's grace this morning. And we want to pray for you. We want to pray that God, God would made, be made known to you, that you'd be filled with the Spirit and be comforted by Him, and that God would intercede and intervene in your life, even today and in the coming days, as we continue praying for one another. Maybe you are feeling the brokenness of your sin or of your circumstances or just something in your life that's making you feel the brokenness of the world. I think prayer helps us Remember the goodness of God and trust freshly in the power of God and what He can do to intervene. And so I just want to encourage us with that. Friends, look, this church is built on the gospel, evangelism, discipleship, acts of mercy, prayer. But what they are doing is they're looking to Jesus. That's what prayer does. It takes our eyes off of the mess and helps us look to the one who can fix and give grace and help, and comfort. This morning, would we cry out to him afresh and just say, yes, Lord, what we do, we, we need you. We need you more than we need our next breath, Father. Would you come and do what only you can do among us? Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, we're so thankful for the gospel again this morning. Thank you that you had a plan to advance the gospel even to the point where 
us all the way here in South Africa have heard the good news and trusted in Jesus. And we pray this morning, Father, if, if there are those in the room this morning who are looking in, that you would help us again trust and look in Jesus and maybe even for the first time look to you and say, yeah, God, thank you. Thank you that the gospel has made its way all the way here and that you have come looking for us as we will respond in faith again this morning. Father, we pray that as a church, we would feel and know how the gospel would advance in us in every way. We pray for growth in these four areas we've looked at this morning. Uh, but Father, we pray particularly for this morning, that those who come in here knowing the ways in which they need prayer, that as we respond to you now, that you would come and meet, that you would bind up the wounds, that you would bring healing, that you would bring change, if that's in your will, that your spirit would be again poured out for our good, to be uh, comforted, to again trust in Christ, that we may know your presence with us, and that even your power be made known among us again as we celebrate the good news of the gospel. We're looking to you this morning, Jesus.